We are wrapping up the relationship goals um, series this morning, and it just so happens to be my 23rd uh, wedding anniversary this morning, Deanna and I. Uh, Happy anniversary! So if we did this correctly, she should probably preach this message, but... uh, I guess I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, there, uh, you know, some of you might remember I talked about my trip to Seattle. Um, uh, it was a couple years ago now that I, that I went for, for the Foursquare Connection event, where, you know, which is coming up in Denver at the end of May, and several of us are going, and we're going to be a part of that. I went to the one in, in Seattle, and I was talking about that a couple years ago. Seattle is a pretty cool town, and um, lots of unique and fun things to do. There's the Space Needle, there's the docks, there's the big Ferris wheel or the Great Wheel. Anybody ever been on the Great Wheel before? Uh, not, okay, all right, nice. And so there's, there's the Pikes Place Market, which is amazing. So many um, amazing places to go in Seattle. But do, do you know the best way to experience a town or any vacation spot or, or, or city that you visit, wherever you go, is to talk to the locals. And you find out you know, what they recommend. And, and it was because of them that I got to experience so many things that you know, just aren't there when you kind of just Google you know, best experiences Seattle. Um, and so um, I went to the Gum Wall, which was uh, uh, you know, experience in and of itself. I'm sure that it carries no viruses at all. Um, <laughs> those, you know, uh, it, it's such, I mean, there were people there that would put their tongues on that thing for the picture, you know, just to say they did it. Um, not me. Um, there is the best chowder that I've ever tasted at a little spot on the fourth floor of a mall that was two blocks down from my hotel that somebody told me about. Um, some of the town's best desserts, I was told, and I would probably probably agree. I haven't been to every place, but I, I got to tell you, if you go to downtown Seattle, go to the pie bar. It is the best pie that you've ever had. And I got to tell you about Molly Moon's ice cream because I went there and it was like ice cream, but like at another level. And, and so um, we, I went to a place called Volunteer Park, which was almost like um, visiting, uh, you know, a national park right in the middle of Seattle. I was told to go there and it was just a beautiful experience. Um, I visited the, the Amazon office spheres when I was there, which was an interesting and unique experience. And the Museum of Pop, Pop Culture um, had a Marvel comic feature that was on while I was there, so, and several people recommended it. So I went, and it was such a cool experience. Um, so Seattle is cool, and the, the Connection Convention that year is one of the best that I can remember ever attending. But if I hadn't talked to my friends who live in Seattle, that live in that area, Seattle would have been just all right. But Molly Moon's ice cream. <laughs> and that and that chowder, that bowl of chowder. I you know, I got to hug Spider-Man and Black Panther and see a whole room of other really cool pop cultural exhibits, you know, at the Museum of Pop Culture, including some, you know, music stuff like, you know, Jimi Hendrix's uh, guitar, uh, Nirvana's drum set, you know, movie stuff like Indiana Jones' leather jacket and hat, you know, um, stuff from the Lord of Rings movies, the original lion costume from, from Wizard of Oz. And, and, you know, what I realize after an experience like that is that I could have just visited Seattle and could have very well missed being in Seattle. You know what I mean? I could have missed all of that stuff. Once I got outside of my little Google Seattle's best box, celebrating Seattle was amazing and it was easy. And so um, why do I say that? Because we've been talking about relationships and we're talking about singleness and how to date. We're talking about engagement and now we're on to marriage. And it's fascinating to me. I've read so many articles about the state of marriage today. You probably have too. You've probably heard so many things. So many interviews you know, with young people. And I gotta tell you, marriage is falling on a bit of hard times in our culture. That, that still the, the vast majority of people in America that are unmarried said that they wanna get married. They still say that they wanna get married. And the vast majority will get married, but less will be married than ever before and people are waiting longer to do it. And so I see a a, a pervasive cynicism about it. Um, Even recently, as I read reports from people saying, you know what, I watched my my relative's marriage and I've seen every single one of them get divorced or maybe even my own family. I've seen the pain of it and so I don't know if I want to be a part of that. You know, you hear that as part of the conversation and I can understand that in a way. Romance is a wonderfully powerful thing and it's potentially a very damaging thing. And many of us have been hurt by it and many of us have been hurt by marriages that have gone wrong. And so our parents or or people around us that we care about, we've seen that. And so what I hear in the culture is people saying, yeah, I've tried that. 
I've seen that. I've seen that it's not working. And what I hear is, man, I've been to Seattle. I've been there. You know, I went to the big Ferris wheel. I went to Pikes Peak. And I would say, you know what? There's more than you know. (laughs) There's more to the experience than you know. And I feel like maybe you're missing out on the real thing. You've had an experience with something called marriage, and yet it's missing some of the key elements that make it so sweet. And for me, I've been married for 23 years today to the day, and I can say that I'm absolutely sold on being married, specifically to Deanna. (laughs) And I can see... And some people, you know, when I say that, when I bring it up in conversation, the twins of doubt, and I want to tell them, I promise you, you've not experienced, you know, a Seattle like this. (laughs) You've not experienced it like this, right? And I say that because as I read all of these articles about people rejecting marriage, they're rejecting it for reasons that I would reject it too. They're saying marriage is a lie. You know, you propose to someone and you'll be faithful and they end up cheating on you. Or there's hurts that come from that. Or marriages won't last. You, you hear all of that and I want to say you're rejecting the real because of the counterfeit. You're rejecting the real because of its abuses. And so let's not do that. Let's go back to the real. Um, let's go back to the, the created intent because marriage is not an institution created by America. It's not. It was created by God. That we, that we saw Paul in Ephesians, he, he's going to quote Genesis chapter 2, that at the very beginning of humanity, God created marriage. Marriage is designed by God. And, it is, and if we want to have a beautiful marriage, let's look at how the original author put it together. Because when he made it, it was good. Amen? And so you see in Genesis, as God was creating the world... Seven times he, he said, it is good, 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 right? And th- then we get to our first not good. And what was the first not good? He said, it is not good that man should be alone. And, and it, man, man wasn't technically alone. God was there. And, you know, there were lots of animals too. But there's a big difference between watching a sunset with a woman versus a cocker spaniel. And God said... This is not good. We're, we're, we're meant to have community. And listen, it doesn't have to be strictly romantic, but we're meant to commune with one another. And that's why this is so important. That's why gathering is so important. So God knocked Adam out and then brought forth from his rib a woman. And when Adam saw her, it says God made a, a helper suitable for him, is what the words of Scripture uses. Now, helper sounds like a diminishing thing, and it's not meant to. God is actually called a helper many times in Scripture, um, in Psalms. And if you still feel like it diminishes, helpers do what? They help. And who do they help? People that need help. <laughs> right? And so it's a merciful thing to Adam. God, God saw him and said, this, this is not good. <laughs> you know, he needs some help. This man needs help. And Eve came into the picture. And what happened? Adam sees her and he breaks into song. He says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, you're like me and you're a compliment to me. Amen. Let's just pray as we, as we begin this morning. Father God, would you just seal your word to us this morning? Um, there's so much about you that we, we love, and there's so much about that you show us about love. So God, just uh, speak to us this morning in your word. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so <laughs> Adam breaks into this song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And you're, you're like me. You're a compliment to me. Here's the thing. One gender is not inferior to the other. Peter called her a co-heir and the grace of life because Genesis 1 says that both male and female are created in the very image of God. And so Adam says, at last, here's one like me. You know, it's not the Cocker Spaniel. (laughs) And you see poetry. You see beauty. You see vulnerability, but you see safety in that. I can be completely naked before you transparent before your gaze, and yet I can feel safe. You have all of me, and it is good. That's marriage the way God intended, and yet many of us don't see it that way. Why? Well, Genesis 3, when humanity severs the relationship with God, it's not just the relationship with God that breaks. Everything downstream is positioned. It's poisoned, and and you see that relationship 
um, gets difficult. Now the man who used his power to care, it says in scripture, will rule over you. There'll be a domineering thing that's happening there and that you'll see difficulty enter into the relationship. It's not the way that God intended it, but that stuff is going to happen. The enemy comes in and he causes that stuff. And as soon as we severed from God, families broke. And then Genesis in poetic fashion follows um, seven lineages down the number of perfection. Let's see what happens when our relationships kind of wander from God. What happens? In seven generations down, a guy named Lamech, um, Lamech comes and he says a poem to his two wives. He has two wives, Ada and Zillah. Ladies, um, tell me if this would stir your heart. I'm going to read this, this poem. He, you, you meet a guy. Um, he seems nice. He's a conqueror. He's a go-getter. So he brings you on the honeymoon. He sits you next, down next to his other wife, and um, he recites this poem. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What's the deal with that, right? I mean, when we're severed from God, what happens? Ego takes hold, and out of his ego, he says, if someone even tries to wound me, I'll kill him. Even if it's a boy, I will murder him if he offends me. And then when it comes to women, no longer is she my co-heir. Now I'll take two of you. He takes two, and their names, their names are translated, if you, if you translate them, mean ornament and tinkling. You, you think he cares about their intellectual concerns? Women become candy and disposable objects to be used by this person. And you see that when we break our relationships away from God, every relationship breaks. And women lose and men lose. And so many people today say marriage is a dead institution. How many of you heard that? Marriage is a dead institution. And, and what they're looking at is a lame duck that is part of our culture and what it's become. And I would say, if that's all I saw, I would reject it too. But that is not what God made. That's not how he designed it. No one gets wounded more than people in romantic relationships. But that is not the real thing. It may be ice cream, but it's not Molly Moon's ice cream, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's not that next level experience. It might be chowder, but it's not bike speak chowder. You see what I'm getting at? That, that marriage is designed by God, and when we do it his way, it is good. It is very good. And so that's why Paul circles around to it in Ephesians. He's talking in the first three chapters all about a story of what God has done for you. We spent a lot, long time in Ephesians uh, back in 2018. There's no commands in those first three chapters. He speaks about, you know, how a healer was sent into our wounded, woundedness to bind up our wounds and into our distress. A hero came, Jesus Christ, to forgive and restore and redeem and bring you home. And then he shows you how to walk in this life. He says, you know, don't walk as unwise, but walk as the wise. Wisdom is I understand, you know, how God made the world and I'm going to walk that way. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by a beverage, but be controlled by the spirit of God that the best way to live life is is the way that God intended, filled with the Spirit and walking according to his word. And he says, as we do that, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We won't use words to hurt each other or cut each other down, diminish each other like some of you experienced in your home. We'll speak life-giving words, encouraging words, and caring words. And then as it bleeds into the family, he says... And we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says marriage is designed by God. And when we do it his way, we all flourish. We all flourish that God's given us an instruction not to diminish us, but to liberate us. That this is designed by God and when we do it his way, we win. But it's not just designed by God, it's meant to display something about him. And, and so that's why Paul brings it up here. He says the two become one flesh. And there's a mystery to that, it says in scripture. And by mystery, he doesn't mean that it's something confusing or weird. He says a mystery is something that was hidden and it's now revealed. And he says the great mystery of Genesis is that it's not just talking about a male and female, but it's talking about Jesus and his church. And you'll see that language in this uh, chapter in Ephesians that we're going to be in today. And um, 
that God is not distant up in the sky saying, good luck, I hope you figure this thing out. Um, It's that Jesus Christ, the son of God, he came for us and he loved us like a husband loves a wife is the actual phraseology that, that we see in scripture. And so he says, so when you get married, your marriage is not designed by God, it displays something about God. Your unity is meant to tell a bigger story. That's what it's meant for. We talked about how singleness is good and some of us will be single our whole lives and that's not bad. Jesus was, um, Apostle Paul was. You know, God's given purpose to singleness. Singleness exists to pursue an undistracted devotion to the Lord. I leveraged my singleness to be devoted. But marriage is also good. Singleness is about devotion to the Lord. And if we're gonna go into this conversation today, I'd say marriage is about displaying something about the Lord. Marriage is about displaying something about him, that the world gets to see a picture of how Jesus, the son of God, loves his church through the way husbands treat their wives. That's one of the reasons for marriage. It's, it's not just for the tax breaks. It, it's because we love Jesus Christ. And, and the way we treat each other as husband and, and wife shows the world the beauty of what it can be and what that relationship can be. And let me tell you something. Ancient Rome saw this. If you look at church history and, and you know, how did a culture like Rome, which was so against Christianity, suddenly adopt it in such massive ways um, that it changed the entire um, empire? How did that happen? How did you get a Roman that, that had a totally different relational dynamic, the, the man that had all the power, um, you know, and so women were disposable. You'd marry one to kind of be a breeder, just to kind of pass on DNA, and then you would have another that was kind of your intellectual equal, and then you'd have a couple side ladies that were kind of your uh, sexual playmates, and that's how men ruled in Rome. That's, that's what the culture was like. How did those guys suddenly step into Christianity where believing in Jesus would, number one, at least make you lose your job and then probably get you killed. And then you, you encourage you to have you know, monogamous marriage your whole life. How would the Roman guy sign up for that? And what you discover in the writings, this is so amazing, was that for most of them was that they saw the Christian marriage. They saw the way that husband and wife loved each other in a Christian marriage. They would see women when they were elevated rather than diminished. They were esteemed and valued when marriage was done God's way. And it elevates men too. They don't act like beasts anymore, right? And, and, and so they act like sons of God. So the Romans would look at the Christians and say, your theology is backwards, your book is so regressive, you're so strange, but you're also better. Your, your lives just seem to be doing better, and you're women. And it was, it was often the beauty of the Christian marriage that lured people to know Jesus. And you'll read that in the ancient histories, because marriage is designed by God. Listen to this. Marriage is designed by God to display something about God. It's display his goodness, the way Jesus loved the church. So we need to figure out how to do it right. That's why this is important. That's why this discussion is important. In this passage, Paul focuses on wives and husbands and gives some particular commands that frankly, I know are a bit controversial. You know, I addressed it when we were in the Worthy series back in 2018 when we were going through the book of Ephesians and we got to chapter five. I think it's worth going back to if, if you weren't in that conversation. We'll link to it when we post the message on the website later this week. And another one, I was considering doing two messages on marriage, but then I started thinking about it. The message I wanted to preach, I already preached when we, we, when we were in the Let's Not Forget the Fine series. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila. If you, wanna, if you want to see a biblical example of a marriage on mission, that's it. That's the New Testament example. So we'll, we'll link to that one also. But as we dig into Ephesians 5 and verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And for me, that word, submit, and for our culture, it feels like a bomb that you just kind of set off in the room. So let's just see if we can dismantle this before it blows up this morning. It's a scary word. Never, never mind, it seems that somehow everyone conveniently skips over verse 21, where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence. So submission goes both ways. It's not just the, the wives to the husbands, but it's the husbands to the wives. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the conversation yeah. we had in the Worthy series uh, back in, in uh, in 2018. 
Um, so, but how does that always get over? And, and yet, verse 22, Paul looks at the wives and he says, I'm, I'm going to focus this conversation. I, w- I want to take your cues. From, I want you to take your cues from the church, ladies, and show the world how the church responds to Jesus. And he grabs the word submit. And I know it's not a fun word. I mean, no one in here is like, what a great time. That's actually what I was planning on doing today. I, you know, what do you want to do today? I know I want to submit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just not something we, you, nobody seems to love that word. There was there was a focus group I was reading about with a bunch of young single women and they said when you hear the word submit tell us some words that come to mind and they were all profoundly negative they were all you know and I don't blame any of them because most of them were thinking about you know being abused by domineering men I mean that's that's kind of the the culture that we live in and they that don't have their best interests in mind and frankly they were thinking about you know the culture that we live in the culture of the day And I'd say, you're right, but don't throw away the ideal because this is given from God who's good and cares about us. He's not trying to hurt us. He's trying to set us free. So what does he mean when he says this? So let's start with what he doesn't mean, okay? And then we'll talk about what he does mean. What he doesn't mean um, with the word submitted is subjugation. That, that one human being sub, subjugated to the other, or, or in this case, men subjugating to women. That's not what it means. There's, there's actually nowhere in the Bible where any human being is called to subjugate to another human being. The, the, person, uh, the, the person with that power is God alone, okay? And so this word and this verb is in the middle tense in Greek. And, and what does the middle tense of a verb mean? The middle tense means that you do that verb to yourself. So this is a call to women that they have a choice and they freely choose to enter into this relationship with a man that works in a certain way. So this isn't all women submitting to all men. It doesn't work that way. I've had girls ask, how do I submit to my boyfriend? And my answer is, you don't. You don't. This is talking about a woman entering into a covenant of marriage. That's what this verse is talking about, which is a whole other level. That's a serious thing. And so when I enter into that, I'm taking on a different level of responsibilities. The text says your own husband. Submit to your own husband. This isn't all men. This is, this is the guy that I'm committing my life to, to treat him in a certain way. And so this isn't him domineering me. And it's definitely not servitude. It's not I become less than. It's not that I'm second place. The two are equal. It's always presented that way, that men and women are co-heirs of the very grace of God, as it says in Peter. That this is not meant to diminish. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to sit back and be silent. And it doesn't mean that women don't have a voice and aren't leaders. Can I get an amen, please? Amen. Thank you. Look at Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 uh, 31 woman is launching small businesses and she's buying and she's selling real estate. She's getting stuff done. So this, you know, isn't telling someone to just go and sit back and wait for someone to call on you. That's not what's happening in this text, okay? And so that's the abuse of this text, not the good. That's the Seattle without experiencing the real Seattle. So what does the word submit mean? Well, what it means, and let me give you a very wooden way to say it in the original language. Submission is an inclination to receive and affirm leadership. And I'm going to define what that leadership looks like in just a second. So please hear me out. Don't, you know, let's continue the conversation. It's an inclination to receive and affirm leadership. Now, we'll talk about um, leadership as we go on. Let's, let's talk about this definition for a minute. We're to do this to one another. But then he does repeat it again and single this out to the ladies, so it must be important. It's, it's like the word inclination. Be, be, I, I, I like that word, inclination, because what it means is a general disposition or a posture. It doesn't mean that a woman can initiate lead, leadership. Back to verse 21, which says, you know, submit one to another. We're supposed to submit one to another, so let's not forget that. It doesn't mean, well, I have a good idea about how to solve this problem for my family, but I'm the woman, so I'm just supposed to you know, wait until he figures it out, even though I figured it out a few days ago. You know, so I'm just going to wait. He'll get there. Come on, honey. Come on. That's not it. 
That's not what this is saying. Women are to present ideas and make decisions, all that kind of stuff, and they are to lead. But there's a general disposition that says, I want to understand when this man that I've made a covenant with took on the role of husband, he shouldered some responsibility under God. And that God will tell him as a husband, you are supposed to use the male strength that I've given you to position the world in such a way where the woman wins and those children win. That men use their strength and their power, but often in the world today, they use it for selfishness. And women and children lose. Just look at the statistics, right? Just look at the conversation that our culture has. And yet when a man becomes a husband, it says, take that power and channel it towards caring for that woman and caring for those children in a fully orbed way. And if you don't, I'm coming for you. Honestly, you know, that's why when God showed them the garden and, and, and you know, what happened there and Adam kind of messed up and he said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? That, that there is a whole different weight that is put on a man to use his power for her. And you want him to feel that. You want him to feel that kind of weight. It's kind of like the father waiting with a shotgun when his daughter comes back from a date, right? You want, the, you want the guy to feel that, that under God, I'm meant to treat her like she's God's daughter. And so it's like Uncle Danny's expectation for me when I was young and dating Deanna. I talked about him last week. Deanna has a, a protective uncle who says, you know, if you even make eye contact with my niece wrong or treat her wrong, I'm going to deal with you. <laughs> you know, I, I just want you to be aware that if you go sideways, I am coming for you. And, and so us boys need to feel that from the father or the uncle. Am I right? And, and, and men are meant to feel that under God. I need to use my power and my strength in a way that helps this woman and these children. You want him to feel that. And let me tell you something. Most women, when asked, they want a man that will initiate. If we ask the ladies, just to put it in a dating context, what guy would you rather go on a date with? A guy that says, hey, do you want to go out? And you say yes, and you get in the car. And when, he, when you do, he goes, what do you want to do? Or do you want the guy that goes, okay, I did some research, you know, depending on what your mood is, I was looking at a bunch of different restaurants and I found this awesome little seafood place, you know, right along the lake and we could eat there. It's got big windows and, and uh, great views and we could walk, walk along the waterfront afterwards. You know, I thought that'd be cool. Or if you're not feeling that, there's also, you know, this little Italian place that's kind of hidden in the hills and it's got this little garden patio and we could have a more intimate vibe. So I wasn't sure what you're feeling, but I narrowed it down. What are you feeling? Where are you at, ladies? Which guy would you want uh, to go on a date with? The I don't know guy or the count, at least he made an effort guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you, you want the guy, typically the answer is I want the guy that initiated. And Deanna, I would think, would say a loud amen and a yes to that, <laughs> right? And so from my own experience, even if Deanna doesn't like what I suggest, she appreciates when I at least make some suggestions. She doesn't say, are you trying to hold me back? Are you trying to, to limit yeah. me? You know, no, in, in general, the lady will appreciate the initiation and gladly receive it and affirm it. And that's what you want. You want to see a guy that's initiating on behalf of your good. And when he does it, affirm that. Affirm Amen. it. Get a posture where you go, when he does it, I want to celebrate it. So much of the pain in the world today, I would say, is the passivity of men. A lot of you feel that. You would have, you, you would have loved as a little girl uh, for your dad to come up to you and say, you know, get in the car, baby. Let's go. I've got some errands to run. I want, you, I want you to ride with me today. Some of your deepest wounding as men, even, is that your dad never initiated, you know, a conversation with you where he said, boy, let me tell you, you know, what I think about you. I love you, son. I care about you. And I see the amazing things that God's doing in your life. You know, you longed for that statement and some of you have gone down many broken roads looking to fill that void. You longed for the initiation of a man and it's hurt you when he didn't. And so when a guy does it, receive it and affirm it because here's the thing, ladies, what's celebrated is repeated. <laughs> what's celebrated is repeated. So when you see him take his first fumbling steps towards spiritual initiation, you know, maybe we should go to church Affirm it. Don't be like, well, it's about time that he figured it out. Don't do it because let me tell you, let, let me let you in on a secret. There's a vulnerability to initiating for anybody, right? And so when a guy makes a decision to initiate, affirm as much as you can, celebrate that. Now, now let me say this. I know a lot of women hear this and they get fearful because you go, well, if this is what's going to happen, the question is, do I lose freedoms? 
What if he hurts me? What if he takes me away, uh, uh, you know, where, where I don't want to go? Uh, I'm scared of marriage because, you know, it's going to ruin my life. And, and for, for some, the, the idea of a man leading in any form at all uh, terrifies them because they think, because they think he's going to micromanage me. And, um, you know, or he's going to crush my dreams. And, and let me tell you something. If that's what happens, that's not leadership. That's not leadership. That's not the leadership that we're talking about, you know, with that first definition. That's not the leadership that's being talked about in scripture. That's micromanagement. Crushing your dreams, that's bad leadership is what it is. Don't marry that guy. That's, that's why who you marry is so important. You don't want that guy initiating anything, Right? If, if you have a good leader, then you celebrate that. Some of you, it's, it's just in your personality. You intrinsically resist the thought of letting anyone, you know, tell you what to do. But, but let's talk about biblical leadership. What is it? The first shall be last, right, is biblical leadership. And it's spirit-led servanthood. That's biblical leadership. It's spirit-led servanthood, right? What do you need? How can I help you? They become a student of you to help you discover what your gifts are. And then they think about how to set you up to use those gifts to make you better. And they'll walk with you. I mean, this is a good leader, right? They'll, they'll walk with you to help you figure out what your vision is and try to figure out how to access whatever resources are available to make it happen for you. They will be guiding some of it, but there's, there's not restriction there. You should actually feel liberated. You should actually feel more free. You get to be more of you, not less. More of you because of them. And you would be glad to have that type of person in your life. That's the type of leadership and initiation that this is talking about. And so you should uh, do that for each other. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But remember, verse 21, submit to one, one to another. And so it's leading together. It's co-heirs, both for the benefit of others. It's similar to the way, uh, in, a, in a way, uh, that our church council operates. We serve on a team that only moves forward when unanimous decisions are made. Everybody says yay or everybody says nay. <laughs> and so we don't make a decision or move forward on an initiative unless we're all on board. We submit to one another in that way. And so um, what does as to the Lord means when it says submit to one another as to the Lord? It means that that's my motivation. That now as, as a function of my spirituality is how I treat my spouse. That's part of it. God will be worshipped by the way I treat them. And those things are intertwined. And so the question, but what if he wants me to do something illegal? Yes, uh, there are some caveats to that. If your husband's like, let's start a cartel, the answer is no. Don't do that because his leadership is always subject to God's leadership. And, and so no, don't follow him into sin. But what it's saying is it's trying to show us the weight of marriage. Marriage is not a trifling thing. When you agree with, uh, whether, whether you agree with any of this or not, when you bind yourself to someone romantically, uh, they typically have extraordinary power in your life. Even if you're not bound by marriage, they impact your sense of self. You know, your, your sense of value, your sense of worth, your financial decisions, typically, your, your future. So much enormous power is being handed to that person, whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously. And what the Bible is saying is, when you enter into a covenant, make sure it's with a guy who's taking his cues from your king. And then when you knit together, your pursuit of the Lord is now lockstep with that man. So choose well. Get a good man that has a standard of morality that's outside of you that wants to treat you well because he fears the Lord. You see that? And when you get a guy like that, let him know that you believe in him, that you trust him. Let him know when he does something great and affirm that. So don't shame them in front of other people, but celebrate them. Build them up because, honestly, they need that. And so now I want to talk specifically to the men for a bit. Now, um, you know, that part was hard because um, that, that word submit is such a, a bomb. But listen to this. Only 41 words are used to instruct the wife. And there are 116 for the men because we need help. Right, guys? And so let's go to verse 25. Paul instructs husbands to love your wives. That word love is the word agape in Greek. And it's talking about a different kind of love that can be uh, translated variously in other places. But the idea that it carries most often in the Bible and the idea that carries here is covenantal love. It's a covenant love. 
This is you and me together, and I've, I've given my life to you as a covenant. Not just an emotional feeling, and certainly not just an erotic one. Um, it's a binding together of I promise to love you, sickness and health, till death do I die under you know, God's name and the, the Trinity and, and, and the witness of people and under your name. You commit to her. You love her. And what does that love look like? Paul qualifies it. He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the man loves his wife the way Christ loved the church. What did Christ's love for the church look like? He qualifies that, and he says, and gave himself up for her, that he gave himself up. He gave everything. You see, Jesus initiate and sacrifice so his bride can be fully who she's meant to be under God. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus has done for us as the church? That's what a man does. And so let me say this. I know when we, when we talk about, you know, submission, I can feel tension building because uh, women have been abused. And, and when we get to the verse about submission, you know, I don't want to submit to this guy and affirm any type of leadership because he could abuse it and he could damage it. Well, the thing is, this whole structure only works if both parties play their parts. It's like tennis. If one person decides not to play, it's not much of a game, Right? And so there's, there is a receiving and affirming of leadership, but here's the other path. What's specifically, what is the man called to do? What's he called to do? To initiate and to sacrifice. To initiate and to sacrifice so that she can be fully who she's meant to be under God. So there's no receiving and affirming leadership if he's not initiating and sacrificing. Um, that's what Jesus did. He came for us when we were at our worst. He initiated. He did not wait. He did not say, well, let them clean themselves up a little bit. You know, I'm going to get them a ladder, you know, so they can work their way up to me. That's not the conversation that happened. He, that's not what he did while we were sinners, while we were sinners. That's the first part of Ephesians. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he calls us. He came for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. You know, he didn't wait until, you know, we checked our attitude. He, he didn't wait for us to pretty up. He saw us at our worst and he came running. He saw us when we were hurt and he came to heal. He saw us when we were broken and he came to make us whole. He saw us when we were, frankly, rude. <laughs> and he came to us with kindness. And then he sacrificed. No home, no clothes, you know, no esteem. He sweat drops of blood and then he poured out his blood totally. He died for us. Why? What was the point? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He initiated, he moved towards us, and he sacrificed down to his very life to do what? To protect us. If sin is going to bring condemnation, I will take that condemnation. If your failure is bringing judgment, I will take that judgment. He said, I will protect them from the ravages of sin, and then I will provide for them whatever they need. And then here's the next part. It says, in the same way, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He looked at us, and he asked the question, what do they need? They need forgiveness? I'm bringing it. They need hope? You got it. They need joy? I'm putting the very spirit of God inside them, and the fruit of that spirit is joy. You know, they need love, and I'm bringing the fullness of it because I am love. Whatever we needed, he provided. He initiated, and he sacrificed so he could protect, so he could protect and provide, so we could be presented before him in splendor fully who we're meant to be under God. That's what a godly man does. He initiates and he sacrifices so his wife can be fully who she's meant to be under God. And let me tell you something, ladies. When you meet a guy like that, suddenly receiving and affirming that guy gets way easier. That you know he will give himself for me to be fully who I'm meant to be under God. And I can trust him with everything. That's what a godly man does. Genesis chapter 1. 
We've talked about this before. When all was chaos and darkness and void, God in the first three days, he built structure, right? There was sea and air and land and the three geological support structures. And then the next three days, he filled that structure with life. He built form for the sake of fullness, structure for the sake of flourishing and of all living things. And then he created us. And he told the man, cultivate and take the raw materials that I've given you and position them in such a way that the world flourishes. That was the language that he used. And that's what a husband does. I have a limited amount of money time, resources, and energy, and my calling unto God is to initiate and to sacrifice, to create an environment that protects and provides for my family so that they can flourish under God. That's what a man does. And so men, I want to challenge you to do that, initiate. So how do you initiate? I just wrote down just a few ideas just to get us started. Initiate romance. I remember hearing pastors say, you know, when I was growing up that you've got to date your wife. And I was always like, duh, like, of course, you know, I'm going to date my wife. We're going to go out. We're going to have a blast. We're going to have fun. Yeah, we'll go on dates. And then you get married and you go to work and work is hard and the world is mean and it's cruel. And you go home and you sit on the couch and you've got, you know, five kids running around and they need and want your attention. Then she says, how was your day? And you're like, exhausting. (sighs) Right? And you, you, you turn on a show and you hope it provides some escape on the television. And what happens? After a while, the two of you just become roommates. And, and then what happens? I, I, I talk to guys that are contemplating divorce. And what do they say? What is the thing that you always hear say? Man, our love just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of petered out. It just kind of faded. That's the language that you hear, right? Hear me out, guys. Look at me for this one. Listen to this. Love is like a fire. And fires fade because you don't tend to them, right? You've got to tend to that fire. Initiate romance. You don't fall out of love, you fall out of trying. Tend to that fire. We're to stoke the flame. That's your job. Initiate. Initiate romance. I'm talking to myself here. Plan a date night. What are you doing Thursday? Let's get out of the house. You know, let's, let's get out of town and, and, and then go. And pick a restaurant that's not surrounded with TV so you can listen with your face <laughs> about what's going on in her life. And take an interest in it and care. Initiate romance. Initiate vacation. Initiate rest. Take the lead on that. Don't wait for her to start. Initiate communication. Let, let, let me give uh, you some good advice, and it's sound biblical advice. Never go to bed uh, if you're in a fight. You know, it, it may lead to some sleepless nights, but it'll lead to some peaceful days. So get that right. Pray together, because it's hard to pray together if there's something bothering you. You hold hands, and it'll just come out. You know, Lord, I, I just thank you for this day, and I just pray that you would convict them of all their wrongs. Smite them, God, smite them. <laughs> You know, maybe you need to talk it out. I feel like there's something wrong here, and you have that conversation. It's important. Let her know your heart. Initiate conversation, and the last one I wrote down, initiate spiritual leadership. Don't make her drag you to church. Don't make her drag you to initiate raising your kids spiritually. Let me help you. It's not called babysitting if you're their dad. Amen. I, I, I'll tell you, there's something about it, man. I think that's what the enemy does. He wants to pull us back into our own world, and it's a discipline to go, you know what? I want to be the kind of man that Jesus was, and I want to do that. But it often takes a willful decision to say, I will go, and I'm going to go read that book with my kids. I will go and sit down with my wife and say, how was your day? I will initiate. And it will sometimes feel awkward because that's the culture that we live in. But then when you step into it, you go, this is what it feels like to be a husband, to initiate and then sacrifice. Look at what Jesus have and say, how do I position so that my wife and children win? That's what a man does. You don't have to know the ins and outs of all women. That's not what a husband has to do. I have to be the husband of one wife, that one. (laughs) And I get to know and I love her and discover what makes Deanna fully alive under God. And it takes time to discover. There was one summer where in the Gateway District uh, Next End position that I served, and it was my responsibility to hire camp directors. And one of the biggest, most well-attended camps had an opening, and we just didn't need a good camp director. The camp needed some course direction um, because there had been some complaints from the previous years. It needed some help. And I was coming in as the new guy in the district position that oversaw the camps, and all eyes are on me. What are you going to take it from here? 
here? What are you going to do? And so I was doing interviews and getting more and more frustrated all the time um, uh, as the time came close for camp. And Deanna could see it. And one day she kind of just walked by and kind of nonchalantly quipped, you know, I could do that. And now, long story short, um, I thought she was joking and pretty much just ignored the comment for a a couple months. But a couple months down the road, um, when I still didn't have an answer, she spoke up again. Um, And this time, she said, I'm serious, I could direct the Colorado camp. And longer story short, I said, of course you could, and I hired her. And um, she turned that camp around, and we saw, we saw some amazing growth at, the camp, at that campground as a result of her leadership there. Matt Andrews, who some of you um, met, he was our men's camp speaker this, this uh, last year. He was a new youth pastor in Laramie, Wyoming at the time, and he came up to us after that week. He said, I came here just to see how bad it was for myself. Everybody told me all the negative things from the past couple of years. This is my first year as a youth pastor. I just came here to basically go back and tell the church why we weren't going to come back, but this week was wonderful. It was life-changing, and I'm coming back, and next year I'm bringing my whole group. And I got to sit back and watch her win, doing what gives her life, and guess what? She made me look good, too, (laughs) because she became fully alive, and it blessed her, and it blessed me, and it blessed the leaders, and it blessed the campers. So how do we set up each other to win? Submit one to another that I wanted to initiate and sacrifice so that you can flourish under God, not to hold you back. I'm not going to stifle you. That's not what a husband does. That's not good leadership. A husband says, how did God build you? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be the servant you know, to every need, but I'm going to try to position the resources that we have so that you can win, so that when Father God sees his daughter, he sees her in all her splendor. That's what Jesus did for the church. Without stain, without blemish, that's what I want to do. That's what Jesus Christ does. And when the world sees a man treat a woman like that, they marvel. Ancient Rome did not believe in Jesus, but how did Rome change? They saw the beauty often in Christian marriage. And they said, you know what? What you believe is backwards. It's regressive. It's weird to me, but it's better. It's just better. And it truly is. I want to close with a couple stories. Wayne Wayne Grudem literally wrote the book on biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, Doug, you can come on up. It's titled Recovering uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. (laughs) Interestingly enough, he was a seminary professor on the East Coast, and he went and spoke at an event in Arizona. And when he was there, he watched his wife Uh, his wife's health improve. Um, The dry air helped her physical ailments. So what did he do? He quit his job and he moved to a much less distinguished seminary in Phoenix. Why? Because you initiate and sacrifice so that she flourishes under God. You see that? That's what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like. As a, and as a husband initiates and sacrifices, the woman responds and affirms and the world gets to see the beauty of how Jesus loved his church. And let me tell you, ladies, it's easy to be with a guy that's like that. And guys, it's pretty awesome to be a man like that. You'll see some freedoms in that. World War II, the 101st Airborne Division was charged with liberating the city of Foy. Lieutenant Spears was in charge of these men. Spears, as is presented in the book, um, a band of brothers, which they also turned into a show, was there because he was just kind of out for himself. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to get, you know, my own level of advancement for my own career and get out and do as little as possible. That was his story. And so he was looking to just kind of ride and take it easy and coast until he could leave. He had no intention of fighting on the front lines. And then they, they, they got called up and to the 101st to Foy and he was called to lead that moment. They had to, to cross an open field, a very dangerous thing to do. So the trick there was that you keep on moving until you get into the city and you can get solid cover and then go house to house and then eliminate the threats. And as he ran out onto the field and the shots began to fire, he in fear called his whole company of men to hunker down right there in the middle and he made them stop in the most dangerous and vulnerable place. Colonel Winters, who had been their lieutenant, is watching this happen. And as a good leader, it infuriated him. Your selfishness is jeopardizing these people. And he did what any good leader would do. He prepared to run out there. But his CO told him, no, you need to see the whole battlefield and make the commands from here. So he filled his position and he looked at Lieutenant Spears and without hesitation, he charged out into the field through enemy fire. 
And he circled with the men that were out there in the field. And he said, what's going on? And they said, we're, we're pinned down and the, our men are over there and we've been cut off with them. Our comms are down, we can't communicate. And he said, wait here. And he stood up and he sprinted right into enemy lines. And it was so crazy that the enemy didn't even fire him at him at first. He, he was running right into him. They just kind of marveled at this guy who would run like he's, he's running right at us. He's running right at us. And then he jumped the barricades and he ran right over them and he ran right on by. He connected with his men who are on the other side and communicated some key information. And then, this is the craziest thing, he got up and he ran back through the enemy lines again, leaping over soldiers and back over guys at his jeopardy. And it said, at this point, the enemy took it personal and they started shooting at him, not just with the weapons in their hands, they started shooting 88s at him. That's anti-tank machinery. They're after this guy. And he just ran to come to get us. It said, and to lead us where we needed to be, to be safe and to accompany us on our mission. And you know what was said by the soldiers that were in that company after that fact? They said, we would gladly follow that man who risked his life for us to secure for us and to lead us on to whatever mission we've been called to accomplish. And let me tell you something, that's what a good husband does. And that's what Jesus has already done. Let's stand. Jesus ran into the chaos of our brokenness. Amen. And so before you get a relationship with any guy or girl, right, get a relationship with God, right? A God that is not trying to oppress you, a God that is not holding you back, but a God who is charging in to set you free. It's a joy to follow Jesus like that with the freedom of our singleness devoted to him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Your word is a light into our path. God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the very real way that you ministered to us this morning and that you will continue to be with us as we go. Thank you that we are carriers of your glory. God, thank you for your passion and your purpose in our lives, to live for you and to do your purposes on this planet. God, whether we walk in singleness and devotion to you or whether we walk hand in hand in relationship, God, I pray that we will walk forward with the boldness, the, the, with the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That we will make a sound that will reverberate and just like the, the ancient city of Rome that turned to Jesus as a result of seeing the way Christians loved each other, I pray that would be our story. God, may our lives be an example to a world that is hurting and in need that is in a dark place. God, we love you this morning. If you're here this morning and you haven't said yes to Jesus, uh, you're, this is your time, this is your chance. With nobody looking around, with every head bowed, every eye closed, um, only I'm looking right now. Um, this is a personal moment. I just want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you this morning. Uh, go ahead right now if that's you. God, we thank you for your purposes, your plans. Let's pray this together. Father God, I give you my heart, all that's in me. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your purpose in my life. My life is yours. In your name I pray. Amen and amen.